Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Crystal Nazal, and I'd like to welcome you to episode four of the Teaching at PAU podcast. We are so very lucky to have Dr. Kim Case with us today. Dr. Case was a keynote speaker at PAU's third annual evidence-based teaching conference this past summer, and also a recent recipient of the Society of the Teaching of Psychology's Teaching Excellent Award. Dr. Case is a social psychologist by training and professor of psychology at the University of Houston Clear Lake, where she directs the Applied Social Issues graduate degree. Previously, she served as the director of the Teaching Learning Enhancement Center and founding chair of the faculty mentoring program. Dr. Case's pedagogical scholarship focuses on diversity course effectiveness, inclusive classroom practices, and teaching for social justice. Dr. Case's most recent book is entitled Intersectional Pedagogy, Complicating Identity and Social Justice. Now, before I start my interview, Kim, I'd like to give you a big congratulations on recently receiving the STP's Teaching Excellence Award. It's a huge accomplishment and very, very well-deserved. Well, thank you. I was very surprised when I got, got news I'm of that. <laughs> I mean, I really, really was. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the biggest, I think probably the biggest award accomplishment that I've seen, so. Why don't you tell our audience a bit more about yourself and your professional background? And in that, it'd be really good to hear about your teaching philosophy and how that developed. Sure, yeah. Um, well, in terms of my background, I'd like to start with a little bit more in terms of social location, because I think as professors, educators, we need to be thinking about how our social location is maybe impacting what we're drawn to, what teaching styles and philosophies maybe we um, have adopted, and uh, maybe some of the unconscious things that we're doing as teachers based on those social locations and really how those social locations can impact how students view us as, as well. So for me, um, I come from a working class background. So I grew up in East Tennessee, sort of the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, Appalachia. I'm a, if you can't tell from that description, I'm a first generation college student, uh, first generation, um, everything after that, right? First generation master's, first generation doctorate. Um, I think at this point, and um, there have been enough generations past me to now have more people in my family that have gone on and finished their bachelor's, but so far there's only been one other person. Mm -hmm. So my family's still very much not part of higher education. Um, uh, so the transition to graduate school was a challenge, um, and okay, I've okay. written about that a little bit in terms of how the, the class culture um, that's operating sort of at the surface, but also under the surface where you don't realize it's, it's operating has had a big impact on me. And I'm just kind of now realizing that. But so as, a, as someone who's starting out in grad school, trying to learn how to teach, I um, really felt like I've got to seek out some training. There was no built-in training, but there was a university level preparing future faculty programs. So I jumped into that. Um, I also wanted more training beyond just <laughs> to say just psychology. Um, I've never wanted to be sort of a myopic disciplinary, mm -hmm. um, you know, dogmatic person like that. So I sought out, you know, I took women's studies courses. I got a certificate in women's studies at the graduate level. I took educational foundations courses, which is, you know, completely different college, um, not, not in arts and sciences where psychology was located. I took sociology courses which isn't that much of a departure, but all the things I just said were none of those things were required or added to my degree completion. Those were all extra classes, all extra experiences, but I felt like something was missing if I didn't do that. 
So clearly that experience, and it was funny just to watch the psychology faculty go, what is she doing? Where, where is she at now? <laughs> Why is she taking that other class? You know, um, and in the end, I left with this very interdisciplinary perspective, which I kind of always wanted to have because, you know, who hasn't been in a psychology class and thought, but there's got to be this other explanation that makes sense from where I come from, right? So a lot of the things we talk about in psychology courses, undergraduate, graduate, didn't make sense for the people I know, the, my family members, right? The people I grew up with. And uh, having those other experiences helped me shape how I would approach the classroom. Um, although having no training, the first class I taught was more like sage on the stage-ish. I tried to put in activities, you know, as much as I could, but still felt very, um, and we'll get into this, I guess, in the next question, but still felt very much like I had to have everything planned out. And so I've calmed down about that later, but um, so I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I tried to read a lot of feminist pedagogy, scholarship and teaching and learning, and really honestly um, focusing on reading scholarship by people from marginalized groups that I'm not part of. So thinking about, okay, I'm a white woman teaching these classes, uh, especially the white part, so I'm gonna read works by people of color about classroom experiences they've had, and their recommendations for maybe how not to exclude them in, in your in your content choices, your author choices, the examples you use, um, perspectives that you bring to the classroom. And then I chose this particular um, faculty position based on the student population here. So we have a lot of first generation, and I mean a lot. We have a lot of students who are full-time workers um, returning. Our, when I got here, our, our average age on campus was 31 or 2. Wow. And now it's it's lowering a little bit, but I think it's maybe 27. It's not, you know, it's not an 18 year old average kind of place. So in uh, the ethnic diversity and racial diversity here, I think at this point now we're a Hispanic serving institution that happened during my time here that we got that designation. In terms of teaching philosophy, what I've eventually come to is that in a class meeting, the less I say, the less I'm talking, the better the learning experience for the students. And that's just like a really crude way of, of getting at some of the approaches that I have, which I think we're going to go into more detail. So maybe I'll just hold off on that. Well, I guess that's our cue to segue to our next question then. Now, the concept of cultural humility is promoted at PAU. It's a pathway to understand how to work with people who are different to us. It promotes an other orientation and a lifelong learning process. You have coined the term pedagogical humility, which is also about an other-oriented, lifelong learning process to teaching. Now, when you first told me about this concept, I got really excited. Would you inform our audience what the impetus was to you crafting this concept and what exactly it entails? Well, I have to tell you, the day I thought of it, I, I thought, oh, I really hope this catches on. Not for me, but just because, um, you know, when you, when you have a, a term, it can help you concentrate on developing a skill more, right? Uh, uh, you know, when it's kind of just out in the ethos, there's no way to kind of like capture it. So I think it can have real power to say, okay, now we have this phrase, right? So as cultural humility came along, and really that's that's only recent for a lot of universities because you all are always ahead on these things. Um, but the idea of thinking like cultural humility in clinical practice or cultural humility in ally work, right? Like if you're in the privileged group, you need to be really thinking about what does that mean um, to be open to know that you don't always know and that you need to be open to finding out maybe how your behavior could be altered <laughs> in a way that's less exclusion exclusionary for others things like that so 
I think that really applies nicely to uh, what I see as a gap in how we think about pedagogy generally. I think that people who are practicing intersectional feminist pedagogy are doing, probably doing what I would call pedagogical humility. But I'd like to see it go broader, you know, broader than that, like across the discipline, across higher education, exactly. I mean, um, in fact, you know, much broader than psychology. So for me, this is about um, admitting that we don't always know. Um, people come up to me a lot after keynotes, like I did a keynote at Southeastern Teaching of Psychology, and I think it was 2014, and they came up to me afterwards because I said during that talk, you know, we have to be able to say, so I don't know. I'm going to have to go back and look at some resources and next week in class we'll talk about this or maybe I don't know how to approach this problem that's happening in the classroom, whether it's a classroom behavior issue or, you know, trying to help a student understand a perspective of a group they're not part of. Um, we have to be able to admit that this is hard and we don't just come out of graduate school brilliantly, you know, brilliant pedagogues. Um, so I've had people come up and say thank you for saying that because we need to be able to admit that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it, first of all, it gives us kind of permission to relax a little bit and say, well, I don't have to always be like tense and anxious and trying to prove to everybody that I do know how to do this, that we're all sort of in this together. It's a lifelong journey. I love that you said that. Um, so true for cultural humility, so true for pedagogical humility. Um, I think like I've mentioned this to you before, the type of people that go through doctoral programs in psychology, not, not every single person, but I think a majority are very very much um, organized people and you know their type a personality and they plan and they want to be in control of everything in the environment because they're you want to get a certain grade and you know it's those types of students right that's who we are and so then we come out of that we get thrown into a classroom and then we're like i have to plan everything i have to control the situation what if a student asks a question i don't know um and so the tendency really is to not have an open dialogue not have interactive experiential learning which we know from data really works well for learning and i will also add really works well for closing equity gaps so in terms of diversity and inclusion the more we do those types of behaviors in our pedagogy the better for marginalized students and it's great for all the students it's not just the marginalized students um, but we're very control 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 um, and we want to say things like um, uh, you know our, our words and our research are control manipulation deception subjects right but if you think about pedagogy that way, it's not gonna it's not gonna play out the way we want to. So um, I think we're insecure, anxious, and fearful, and that if we if we enter into this idea of pedagogical humility, we can sort of let some of that go. Um, one example I um, have maybe mentioned to you, I don't know, is when I first started here, we have three hour a week classes. Well, we used to, and so preparing for that first class, I think I prepared 120 slides, and of course I'm at the front talking, right? <laughs> And students are like falling asleep and stuff. Um, but I thought for three, oh, how am I gonna get through hours? I have three hours, I have to control everything. I have to have enough plan. And I maybe got through 30. I mean, that's probably even a high estimation, but I was just laughing at myself about how anxious I was about controlling the environment. But over time, I've tried to relax, breathe, ask the students what we should be doing. What I've done now is um, taken um, invited students to help me craft courses. So we actually create the courses together. Mm. So when I have a course I haven't taught before, for example, or if I'm going to revamp a course, I get together four or five students that are going to take the class. And so they haven't had the class, right? And so we, we talk, we meet, we design things, we come up with assignments. And I will tell you right now, so you know, faculty think that students are going to be like, oh, well, we'll just make it just all discussion and no assignments. 
they make it so challenging mm. and so rigorous. I have to talk them back down because they're going to make every student in the class lose their minds because they've got, you know, this paper and that paper and it's all these page links. And I'm like, hold on, you know, this is actually way more than you need to do. So they, and then they're invested and they're bringing in ideas like they know what the backgrounds of our students are, right? So we can bring in more culturally responsive pedagogy that way. Um, we can get really creative about like, this is how I came up with the intersectional public education project. So it's extremely applied. They want to do things that are relevant. They're going to help them change the world. Um, so I've designed a couple of courses that way. The other one was an undergraduate careers and psychology course. And the whole point of the class, and students don't really know this when they take it, is to expose the hidden curriculum. So I got students together, I sat down, and I said, what did we not tell you that you wish you had known? And they were, you know, either seniors or master students. So when you started out, what should we have told you? And then I was also contributing because I wasn't told anything because I was a student from a non-academic type of background, right? And so I had no one to tell me those things. So I think basically the more we can um, get over ourselves is, I guess, <laughs> one of the things I say, um, and focus on the pedagogy of learning instead of the pedagogy of how do I stay the expert in the space? Mm -hmm. um, I think that for us, it's less stressful. And for students, they feel way invested because they, they know that you're listening to them and we're centering marginalized voices. In terms of the academy, students are still a marginalized voice. And I'm not saying they're content experts. I'm not saying that we aren't relevant to the process. I'm just saying that if we want relevant um, student engagement uh, for them to actually want to come to class, to want to read the materials, maybe they could have some input. And then it turns out they're super excited about the class and what they're actually going to do with it, right, mm -hmm. uh, when they leave here. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think uh, students have gifts they bring to psychology. And so pedagogical humility is essential if we want the students to bring those gifts in psychology and stay in psychology. You know, I, I love everything that you just said. And one thing that I, that was coming to mind is you've sort of described my evolution. I started teaching my second year of graduate school and I remember going in and being so nervous that I wouldn't know the answer to a question. And it was so, so important for me to know everything and to be perceived as the expert. And I mean, I'm go entering my 10th year of, of teaching experience now and there is such a freedom when I say I, I don't know that's a good question I don't know does anyone else know let me get back to you on this next week there's a freedom in that and it's also good modeling especially if you're a first generation student it's you know you know wow the the professor's saying she doesn't know and it makes it makes it okay and safe for me to not know and recognize I can there's a whole process of discovery you know you you tend to you can build resiliency you can teach model this and help students build resiliency build grit build confidence build a sense of self-efficacy if you aren't um, sort of positioning yourself as a foregone expert knowing everything and you make yourself you know in, in, a, in some ways vulnerable which seems unattainable when we present ourselves as if everything's magical inside our heads, then that doesn't seem like something students can become. Yes. We just came out this way, you know, um, and something else you said, I was going to comment on about 
Uh, well, you said modeling. I was thinking modeling is so great, and then you said it. Oh, I know. So at this at that C top talk, I quoted a Doctor Who. Um, I'm a huge Doctor Who, Who fan, and at the end of that talk, I quoted Doctor Who. Actually, the whole talk was about Doctor Who. If I'm going to admit the truth here, but at the end, I put up a slide, and it was Matt Smith's Doctor Who um, back then, and it said because this was about like admitting that we don't always know, but we should take risks with our pedagogy for the sake of maybe finding something that's going to be beneficial to students. Right. And so I put, do what I do, hold on tight and pretend it's a plan, mm. um, which is something Dr. Who sometimes says. And so, you know, I try to remind myself like, you know, as long as I have like goals in mind of what I want them to get out of it, maybe it's better if I go into a one and a half hour class with only 20 minutes planned or maybe 35 minutes planned or even if I go in and I have a syllabus but I have like four weeks that there's nothing on it and they can tell me what maybe they want to put into those weeks like what have I had left out so another thing that I tend to do and I think you know this is write about times when I didn't do it the way maybe I should have done it mm -hmm. so that's part of this movement for me for uh, calling for pedagogical humility. I didn't realize at the time that's what I was doing, but I start both my books with times I've really screwed up. Mm. Um, one was going into the first time I taught psychology of women, and this is as a grad student, and you know, having uh, the textbook, which of course it means the things that matter, and then the supplemental packet I put together with all the women's voices that the textbook ignored. Mm. Right? So, Legit, there was no textbook that did inclusion well, but first day of class, black woman raises her hand. This textbook doesn't have me in it. Mm. And I was like, yeah, no, it really doesn't. I mean, she was super brave. I love that. And I was like, yeah, no, it really doesn't. And I um, tried to explain that the supplemental materials were supposed to help fix, quote unquote, this issue. But the, the deal is it doesn't fix it. It's still sideline right it still marginalizes all those voices so i just sort of talked about um that difficult moment of being like yeah you are being excluded i think we we have to start to be brave about writing what doesn't what hasn't worked out and thinking about what are the reasons how are we not prepared for um the unexpected basically right so uh i'm under contract with apa co-editing a book with mary kite and wendy williams um, that's on unexpected kind of unexpected moments in teaching social justice. Mm -hmm. So we're calling it navigating difficult dilemmas or something like that. But it's really about the moments where you're like, uh oh, I'm not sure what to do right here and sort of getting more not comfortable with it, but trusting ourselves that we can figure it out. Right. And so learning from each other about how we handle those, how we handle those things. I think I've gotten away from pedagogical humility, but I actually do see a relationship here with pedagogical humility. People can learn from every class, every situation, any student. And if we have the mindset knowing we will fumble sometimes, we won't always get it right. That is essentially what pedagogical humility is about. And I think you've done this too, and I have, which is had a moment in class where I didn't feel like, like later after the class, I thought, I, didn't, I don't feel like I handled that the way I want to handle that. Mm -hmm. In terms of the learning piece not going the way I would want it to because of something I either didn't think to say or hadn't had a chance to reflect on. And so there's nothing wrong with consulting with your colleagues that you trust, whether, you know, your vast network of national people who also do this, do this work, like if it's a similar course or they're doing diversity content or whatever, 
and saying like, well, you know, I'm thinking about going back in and talking about it this way. What do you all think? You know, checking in, making a plan and just bringing it back up. Mm -hmm. It's well, not like the students didn't notice it happened, whatever it was, or maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't. One time I mixed up two, um, specifically in the book, they talked about them as Mexican American names. I mixed up two names from some research studies and then none of the students said anything. Now there's a chance they didn't recognize that I had done it <laughs> because it was like referring to the textbook, which who knows if they read that chapter, right? But I came in the next week and I was like, you know what? I said, you know, I'm going to make these up. I said, um, last week I said Ramirez and it actually was Rodriguez and no one, no one said anything. Did y'all notice that I did that? Did you feel like you couldn't say, Hey, you're saying the wrong name. And the class was, by the way, psychology of race and racism. And then I said, do you think I would have mixed them up if it was Smith and Johnson mm. or Smith and, you know, I don't know another S name, but like, no, I probably wouldn't. Right. They mm. don't sound the same to me. I'm not going to like put them all in a category together. Um, so we, you know, it gave us a chance to talk about just the um, unconscious, um, homogeneity of outgroups, right? We started talking about our psychology terms from that course and how it like illustrated what I had done. So, and I encouraged them too. I said, you know, you probably don't feel comfortable, but like I totally want you to interrupt me and say, actually you're saying the wrong name, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Now whether or not they would ever actually do that is a whole other question given the power difference, but yeah, why not go back in and bring it back up and say, hey, I illustrated the exact things we're talking about in this class. Again, that touches upon the concept that we already spoke about, which is good modeling for your students. Going back to the concept of pedagogical humility, it's really helpful to know that you can go to your colleagues and say, you know, I was stuck. I'm not really sure I did this well. What would you have done? Do you have any suggestions for me? I think this is the core feature of what being pedagogically humble is about. What I also like about pedagogical humility is this, this idea that promotes continuous growth and learning in our teaching, and I think that's really essential. One thing that I've gathered from your response is this idea that we are continuously growing and learning in our teaching. I strongly believe most professors are focused on improving the student learning experience. At the same time, professors often have a lot of other responsibilities, such as research, service, and the likes, so time is obviously limited. I often hear that the work that the Faculty Learning and Instructional Development Department is doing is very valuable, but it is also difficult to attend some of our events due to time. How can we reconcile the legitimate time constraints faculty have with this model of continuous growth? Yeah, I mean, it is a <laughs> ever-increasing problem because the higher education system and the academy has removed time for improving on one's craft, um, chipped away every single year more and more at faculty time to do those types of things, right? So we have more students in classes, we have higher research expectations for PNT and for going up for full professor, we have, um, or we have people who um, are on, you know, year to year contracts. And so, you know, they've got to make sure that they're four for teaching load or whatever it might be. Um, all that's going well, but they don't necessarily have time to even go to development, you know, which would also contribute to that. But that, you know, how are you going to get that done when you're grading 100 essays every week or something? Um, so I think that the structure, you know, taking intersectional theory and applying it to this, the structural issues are not helping, <laughs> right? And so one of the ways I think the institutions can help, and then I'll get back to faculty, is 
writing this type of work into P&T policies, annual review and P&T policies and promotion policies um, to say, not only is this encouraged, but, you know, recognized, valued, and could be taken into consideration all the way to the fact that like, if you do lots of really good, you know, professional development work and you're teaching um, efforts, it's showing, you know, in the results, then maybe you don't have to have 12, 15, 20 top tier, you know, journal articles by the time you go for tenure. Maybe, maybe we could have more of a balance about, just be more reasonable about that. You know, there's only so many hours in the probationary period for tenure, for example. Um, and um, including in that recognition of specific types of pedagogical work that someone's doing in terms of the type of, you know, development that they're trying to do um, through the teaching center or, you know, conferences in their field or whatever it might be. So we know that teaching about diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice have their own special sets of challenges. If you're doing community engagement projects and service learning projects, or you're doing even community-based uh, research partnerships and your students are getting involved in that, that's a whole other ton level of, of work. Certain, certain methodologies take longer, so that's true for teaching too, right? Um, we recognize that sometimes in research, but not in teaching. So I think if we can get the institutions to sort of start looking at that, that would be great. Now, until that happens, uh, you know, I was also a teaching center director for seven years, and depending on what their schedules were, um, some people I never saw there. Mm. So I think there's a few things that can be done about that. One, you're, you're doing, right, because you offer some electronic access you're using the skills of the interwebs um to be able to you know get these things to people in a in a more reasonable fashion and also i assume they can access some other times but for the faculty member individual i would say you know this kind of does relate to pedagogical humility i think given all the time constraints it's easy to think well my teaching's good enough but i gotta get all this other stuff done right mm -hmm. um i think there's also assumption that they're they're separate spheres in your life because we do talk about it that way, right? There's teaching over here and there's research over here. But guess what? You'll be quite surprised that if you, you know, go to an event, especially an in-person event um, that's on, let's say, culturally responsive pedagogy or even just, you know, constructing your best hybrid course or whatever it might be. Because I know some of the people you work with do amazing things. Um, you have no idea how much that experience is going to change even your research life. Because I have watched faculty come to these things meet another person in a completely different part of the university. They go off and they start this research project together. Sometimes it's scholarship of teaching and learning, but sometimes it has nothing to do with that. But they like just chat in the social part and they find out they have this cool idea. They start, they write a grant. Um, but even if that doesn't happen, the pedagogical nuggets that can be, that can sort of spark new energy in the faculty member go by going to something um, that is about professional development around your teaching can super benefit your research too. Mm. So that's why we have this, we have to go back to the beginning, like why do we have this model in the academy that you teach and do research and of course we all have to do service, but they're not, they're not meant to be separate entities. They're all supposed to be sort of overlapping spheres of our work. So if you learn something new about teaching or start something new with your teaching, it can actually alter the way you think about your research questions. And I've had that happen to me plenty. So 
really it just comes down to a values question for me because the more we can get away from the idea that teaching is about choosing content and get more to the idea that teaching is a process and teaching is um, an art and a craft that you're never going to be done, right? We've said this several times, you're never going to be done honing that craft. Um, and then it's a super rewarding experience when you do something new that impacts your students. And I do think faculty care about impacting their students, right? Like you said, um, if we can get there, and I think psychology as a field needs to move further that way, then it will be an automatic, yes, I have. To, I need to go to these things. I need to go at least once a semester to something, right? It doesn't have to be that every single week you go to something, but for some faculty, it's been five, 10 years since they've done any pedagogical development type of work. And that makes me start to wonder about what does that mean for their students? Uh, you know, are they, maybe they're developing something on their own, who knows, but there's something about the teaching comments comments, the shared experience, um, you know, out of the Carnegie Foundation, um, Mary um, Huber and uh, Pat Hutchins yeah. talk about the teaching commons. And I think there's a, really, we have a shared responsibility to have those conversations with each other. And as much as we can across disciplines, great. Um, but even, even within PAU, right, across disciplines within psych or sub-disciplines within psych um, can just give you a new way to think about things. I had an amazing experience at your evidence-based conference. I, I was just, I, as, as someone who was there as a guest, I kept wanting to jump up and be like, you know, super participant, you know? <laughs> it was very energizing. I, I just loved it. So if, I would say to any, any faculty member anywhere that has a teaching center, please go, um, because it's really only strengthened by how many different types of perspectives are in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that your, your, our students, your students, our students, deserve for us to be striving to get better at what we do. I completely unequivocally agree with you there. I am a huge fan of your intersectional pedagogy work, um, but I am, I'm curious how, sort of bearing in mind all that we've discussed, how would you talk about pedagogical humility and intersectional pedagogy? Um, I guess put in another way, how can you take a pedagogically humble approach to intersectional work? Yeah, that's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I like it so much. Okay, and I hadn't thought about it this way, so I, you know, I appreciate the question a lot. Um, well, they do overlap in many ways, as you've obviously um, determined already. Um, so my main priority in all my work now, and I've kind of, again, this was like, I didn't used to have the phrase for it, but now I have the phrase for it, and it kind of retroactively makes sense of out of my career and what I've been trying to do. So uh, my, my aspiration is to be the best intersectional ally that I can be, and uh, that, it, you know, again, with the lifelong work in progress model, um, it's an ongoing goal. And beyond that, though, it's my goal to get other people to want to be intersectional allies. <laughs> so really, I'm pushing my own goal on everyone else. Okay. Whether that be at a national committee I'm on or a board or, you know, a search committee here or in the classroom or, you know, working with uh, policy things at my own university or uh, in my research. It doesn't matter. Like, that's the whole goal. So these two definitely overlap because if you're going to be an intersectional ally, you have to be willing to, again, going back to social location, you have to be able to see or at least try to see, um, find um, pathways to help you see where your social location makes things invisible to you, makes um, 
microaggressions and harm and certain kinds of discrimination and structural forces that are pushing people out. You have to be able to learn to see those things even when you're the person who that isn't being done to, right? Or that isn't experiencing those things in a negative way, actually in an advantageous way, which of course, I'm a great person, so I should be treated well, so why would I pay attention to those things? That's just how the world should be. Um, so we have to get humble um, about realizing that our privilege, our implicit bias, and our social location are always at work. Our intersectional social locations are always at work. And no matter how long you work on this, you're still going to have those spots that you're not aware of. Mm -hmm. And so you can never get to the point where you're like, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it now. I'm being an intersectional ally. Like I don't tend to call myself an ally. I, I may accidentally do that sometimes, but I try not to label myself that way. I might say, okay, this is how I try to enact ally behavior. And I try to leave it to people who are in groups that are being affected by systems I'm not being targeted by to determine if they want to use that word for me. So that's where the humility piece I think comes in. Like I'm always striving to be this thing, but I don't know that I'll ever actually be this thing. Right. I was on a, um, <laughs> a phone call with a major feminist psychology idol of mine that I won't name. And she mentioned going to visit her son and his family. And I said, what's his wife's name? I told this to, I told this to my students the other day and she said, Oh, he's married to a man. It's two men. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's 2018. And I just asked his wife's name, mm. right? So like in high school, my mother and I were hosting a gay Thanksgiving for all my friends who'd been kicked out of their houses and had nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. And here I am going right back to our heterosexist assumption in a split second. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now I have my nice little anecdote about how I failed again, but, <laughs> mm. but you know, it's going to happen because the culture is still there. We're still being saturated by messages even in a much more progressive sense of LGBTQ rights, although right now things are kind of moving around with that, th those messages are still, uh, you know, assumptions that are embedded, right, in my unconscious, implicit bias areas. So you have to be okay with, okay, this happened, and now how am I going to deal with it and learn from it and try to stay more aware? Um, so I think they go hand in hand. Inters I guess you have to have intersectional humility in some ways. Um, but it's really... You know, intersectional pedagogy, intersectional work requires that you are willing to center marginalized voices, that you are um, looking at, like I said, structural systems, how you're going to dismantle systems of oppression, um, considering structural barriers, reflecting on your own biases, like I said, about outgroups. And that all maps onto pedagogical humility because really who's marginalized in pedagogical uh, philosophy often is just any student especially students from marginalized groups, you know, traditionally marginalized underserved groups. But we don't think to say like, well, what do students think they need when they leave here? Because it seems like a threat to, to us somehow to say students might have something to contribute that's valuable in terms of what this course would mean, what this course would do, what skills would prepare them to, you know, have um, critical thinking about, um, about the world and application. Uh, and often they have way more interesting ideas than we do. So mm. I think they map onto each other in terms of the centering people who are forgotten and looking at structural barriers. I think, I think our courses are often structural barriers to learning. <laughs> yeah. Just like 
you know, sexism and heterosexism and classism are structural barriers. Um, when you get looking at institutional policies, structural barriers to people's um, lived experiences and, and um, outcomes. But um, the more we can do both of these, I think the better the experience is going to be uh, for all the students in the classroom. But I think it would have even more uh, a greater impact on students who typically feel like they're left out of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing you and I talked about before is it not being an ego threat if a student says to me or you, mm. I don't think that went well, mm -hmm. or where in the syllabus are my people, or where in the syllabus is mm -hmm. this thing that you're neglecting, or, you know, something offensive was said and you never came back to that, or, you know, whatever. So, and it not being kind of a thing that sort of sets us off as, well, I'm the professor and I'm the one that knows and you're being inappropriate and unprofessional by bringing this up to me or you know, just going into a defensive stance about it. There's no need to do that if you're not insecure, fearful, and sort of trying to control the situation, right? All those things I talked about at the beginning. Um, if we can, like I said, just breathe and let that stuff go, get over ourselves, not be so, do you know who I am? I'm the professor, you know, mm -hmm. then, when we get that kind of feedback by that one brave student, <laughs> maybe once every once in a while, not that often because they don't want to, you know, um, get penalized or retaliated against with grades or something. Um, actually, I find those moments to be something I'm really grateful for. And I can't even explain to them enough how much I'm like, I'm so excited that you felt like you could tell me this mm -hmm. and then invite like, let's think about what we could do differently or you know, this paper isn't meeting this goal, then is there something we can do? Or if they come to me and say, hey, this paper doesn't make sense for what my cultural background is. I'm like, oh, absolutely. Let's, well, what can we do? How can we change that? Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, that student's actually contributed to making more inclusive space for future students. Everything you just said is so interesting, Kim. But to your last point, I think that's one of the largest benefits to being pedagogically humble is to increase the sense of belonging for all our students in the classroom. And we can't do it unless we non-defensively and openly invite constructive feedback about how to be more inclusive. And of course, students are learning from their professors, but there's potential for students to learn from one another, which accelerates and deepens learning. And that can only happen if we have that inclusive space. And I think this not only benefits our students, but it also benefits us as faculty. The more we learn about our own blind spots, and we all have them, the more we're aware and we can better evolve and change. I see it in my own teaching. I actively invite constructive feedback for my students on ways I can become a better professor. And it's through that feedback that I've been able to make change. And you know, on this, I think most of us are on this journey of being the best versions of ourselves. And so without that information, I couldn't be able to be on that journey. So I appreciate my students for that. Now, I'm sure we can go on and on on this subject matter, but I think it's time to wrap it up. So to conclude, I'd like to ask you your opinion about where you think the profession is heading and what will the future of how we teach psychology look like in the years ahead? Oh, wow. So many, I'm, I mean, I just wrote out my hopes and dreams for this one, you know, like I'm going to try to try to say positive. I think things are going in a good direction uh, for sure. I think people are asking more often 
like the questions I get now aren't the same questions I used to get from faculty when I do workshops and things nationally. Um, I used to get the question, well, how do I put more diversity into my diversity course? So maybe they'll say something like, well, how do I incl include more LGBTQ content? Or they might say, how do I include more about uh, Muslim students or something that's been sort of a recent sort of targeted group. But now the questions I get are more like, but how do I put diversity and inclusion into the biopsychology class? Mm. How do I put diversity and inclusion throughout my entire intro class? So the questions are changing, which gives me a lot of hope that maybe at least within diversity and inclusion, the pedagogical humility is spreading, like uh, reaching out, like I need to know more. How do I do this? Um, you know, APA has been pretty clear that we should not be pigeonholing quote unquote diversity. And then there's a whole like, how does someone define that? Because we've defined it pretty narrowly a lot of the time. Um, not pigeonholing that just to the psychology of women class. And then maybe if they have a stereotypes and prejudice class, because very rarely does psychology uh, undergrad majors or graduate programs have um, courses focused on race or social class. They do exist, but sometimes we might just call it cross-cultural psychology because we don't want to say race or something. So actually in my psychology of race and racism class, which I wanted to be really clear is what we were going to talk about in that class. I had a student say, well, I'd rather we just say culture instead of race. I was like, yeah, I bet. Let's talk about why that's more comfortable. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. So within psychology, we don't tend to, to do that, but, but the questions are changing and getting more broad. Um, and I think the questions are also getting broader to where I get less questions about only race and gender. So I feel like, again, the APA, Definitions are there and very helpful. The multicultural guidelines, the APA undergraduate guidelines for learning goals, all of that does a pretty good job of saying this isn't just gender, this isn't just race, right? Hello, do we ever talk about disability or religion or especially social class within psychology? Um, but beyond that, uh, a lot of people have reached out to talk about intersectionality and how can that be um, done well within psychology. So right now that's mostly focused in psychology of women and cross-cultural type courses, but I think in the next five to ten years um, we're going to see that much more expected throughout all the intro books or at least the intro books that do it well will be the ones people are gravitating towards more. Um, because I had to tell you, you know, the generations of people coming after me in psychology are kind of done with diversity not being included in everything that they do. So, you know, the new generations of PhDs um, and people who are uh, trying to live what their values are in the classroom aren't going to put up with it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So we're going to have to do better. And I've been talking, you know, to some of the textbook companies about how to get ahead of this and say, you know, it's really well overdue, like decades overdue that we change how we do these things. So I think the textbooks are going to change. I think um, uh, I was talking to one of my friends last month about a symposium title. We were trying to come up with a symposium title. And I said, I kind of just want to call it, come on psychology. I'm sick of giving the same talk over and over. Mm. So I think maybe in 10 years I can do a different talk. <laughs> it isn't about why you should be doing intersectional pedagogy. Um, maybe you can move on to a little bit more like, you know, how do you infuse it throughout and maybe not just psychology but wider than that i think we're going to get much more applied experiential less concerned about whether that they memorize content um i would love for no test bank ever that is 
created for a psychology textbook to have a definition question in it. If you can Google it, it shouldn't be on a test question mm. as far as I'm concerned. Now, if you're going to be an ex, you know, in a field, you do have to have some basic things that you don't have to Google every five seconds. But if you do applied questions, they have to understand the definitions, right? So why not get the applied, you know, muscles going for them? So, um, not really muscles, but you know, and I think that I do think every chapter and intro will have diversity inclusion. I think diversity courses will have much more intersectionality and that psychology will start to realize, even though we've always said psychology studies individual social forces and structural mm -hmm. institutional societal level policies and practices impact the individual. So we can't pretend that they don't. Right. We can't say that's not psychology, that's sociology, because it's still relevant to what we are looking at. And we are we are leading an entire society to believe that individuals function in microcosms and vacuums, but they don't. Mm -mm. Um, so I think that's going to I think that's going to get better. At least I hope it does. Um, I think the pedagogical efforts are going to include centering marginalized voices much more than ever before. And that's going to mean validating and accepting in psychology epistemologies and methodologies that we typically say are not psychology. So right now, if I open it into a textbook, what do you think the research method section focuses on in the first chapter? It's going to be the scientific method, which, and it's going to be very detailed about the experiment, like four pages about what an experiment is, which is valuable for students to know. However, it probably isn't going to talk about qualitative methods, participant observation, or even the epistemology of like participatory action research and what does it mean to not try to control research, but to co-research with people um, and to question the power relationship between researchers and the researched, you know, doing research on people versus with people or by the people. Um, I think that's going to have to change. So counter storytelling, counter storytelling, personal narratives, you know, more mainstream journals in psychology um, being able to accept those and coming back to pedagogy more mainstream journal mainstream journals in psychology being open to publishing scholarship of teaching and learning and pedagogy pieces and not just sort of saying like oh, that's only for these two journals over here um and you'll see that with diversity and inclusion work it all it always starts out in a marginalized journal that's sort of focusing on that because the mainstream journals have said go away and over time decades those types of topics the mainstream journals will put one or two in there so with pedagogy it kind of works that way too um when it's cutting edge it's going to be harder to get in the mainstream journals but i think that's gonna that's gonna change a little bit that's yeah. <laughs> what a, what a bright future <laughs> well i know it's a little pie in the sky <laughs> thank you so much for your time today kim it's been a wonderful conversation you have such interesting ideas and perspectives and i so appreciate you sharing that with our audience today well crystal thank you for all the work you're doing for faculty development and you know pedagogical advancements and the teaching commons it's very important thank you thank you Thank you so much for joining us for the fourth episode of the Teaching at PAU podcast. Please join us next time for another riveting conversation on teaching.